We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. Joining me for this episode is Kevin George. Kevin is a former pro player in England with West Ham and Charlton. He moved on to the performance side and psychology side of the game lecturing and working with some of the biggest organizations around the world and has recently released his new book called Psychology Inside the Minds and Hearts of Professionals on the Pitch. So I was really, really excited to get him on to talk about the book, talk about his journey and then his views on a little bit of player development, a little bit of coaching, advice to what we can do to improve what he's seen and heard from players inside and around the game and as you can tell from Kevin's enthusiasm and his insight uh, there's an awful lot to take from it so you're going to really really enjoy this thank you for listening as always excited to hear your thoughts shoot me a tweet at Gary Kernin Instagram at Gary Kernin Facebook coach Kernin Thanks for listening. Here's Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. That's a pleasure. Congrats on the launch of the new book um, and obviously getting you on here to chat about it. First up for you, uh, former pro, obviously, with West Ham and Charlton. Interested if your path has been, like this new, the new book and the study and going into the psychology, has that been a case of, of frustration when you were a player of psychological support that wasn't there? Or has this always been an area that you've been interested in? Oh, massively. It's a, a huge part of reflecting on my own time in football. But it's not just in terms of psychological support, in terms of mental health, even though it plays a part of it. This this book is also about the art of football and player intelligence. And my time in football, there wasn't really much discussion about it. So I thought it was really important to talk about the football IQ, um, the unconscious level that footballers have. So, um, yeah, just talking about the things that we don't speak about. This is the question I was most excited to ask here. In your, in your development as a player, yep. uh, and, and in the era that you grew up, I would imagine there was a huge amount of pressure getting picked for teams, contracts offered, renewed, not getting offered, um, massive pressure, stress, and anxiety in your life. Did it ever make you a better player? No chance, mate. <laughs> really? <laughs> Nope, because I always say this, is that I think anxiety is good for us. I think low-level anxiety is brilliant. It keeps you on your toes. And I think, like, I had a little twinkle when, a little feeling when I go to play a game. But I was crippled by performance anxiety because I had a manager that micromanaged me. um, And he would tell me how to play. But you know what the saying is in football, go and express yourself. Now, football, that's what you're actually doing because it's an art. And so because I was stuck in a place whereby... What came naturally, i.e. expression, and doing what he wanted to tell me, my system where I'd make decisions was almost unstable because I wasn't sure what to do. So it really affected me. And it was I went I was like terrible. And then it was funny because like say across two years, 
I was good, but I weren't great. And what I mean I was good is that all I thought was I'm just going to work hard. And I hid behind working hard. But when it came to making a difference, making myself vulnerable to go and get on the football and do something or going to get the ball under pressure, I hid. Um, so for me, it's like it didn't do me good. But then after two years, I was like, you know what? Forget this. If I if I keep this up, I'm not going to be good enough to go to the first team. Um, so you know what? Forget what the manager thinks. And when I had that not wanting, to, not even caring attitude, my performances went through the roof, and I went from the worst player to the best player. So my whole state changed. It was nothing to do with physical, nothing to do with me staying out and doing extra. None of it. It was all about my thought process. Was this ever something you discussed with your family, or discussed with a mentor, or or even a, a different coach, or was it just something that? you weren't aware of the intensity of it at the time and it was something you reflected on? Yeah, exactly what you just said. I wasn't aware of it. Even though I was living it out, I didn't know what anxiety was. I didn't know how it was crippling me. I didn't have a clue. I was And I was just turning up to go football because there's something somewhere I had to be. Mm-hmm. It weren't really enjoying it at the time, but it wasn't in conversation in terms of, um, you know, like how your mind affects performance and, and discussing conf- um, confidence or lack of it. Um, having that support, you know, when things aren't going well, you're pretty much left alone and, you know, you're treated as a grown man, even although, you know, you're a kid, you know, until 18, you're a kid. And even when you grow up in football, even though you might be 19 and 20, it's a bit of a funny situation because although you could be 19 and 20, the expectation is to be a man and behave as a pro. But actually, in the same sentence, you're told, hold on a minute, you're not established yet. You're not in the first team or you, you've not made it. So you're kind of getting lifted up and slapped down at the same time. Yeah, that's the interesting one for me is because that was my dream at the time, Kevin. Like I would have loved to have gone to an academy in England and gone through that. But looking back now when I'm in my 30s, I'm thinking I would I would never have been ready for a, an adult environment at 14 or 15. But it's it's crazy that that's, that did develop some players. Like when you look at class of 92... Was it the coaching? Was it the fact that they were all they were all in it together, so they supported themselves? What's your thoughts on that? I feel as though the reason when we look at the class of ninety two, as much as this groundbreaking that so many players can break through at the same age, remember that's only a small group of people. There's so many football clubs, so many players who failed in that system because the system wasn't nurturing; it didn't provide support to them. Um, so you know, for that group. It, it worked for them and also that group were probably a good support system to each other but also Sir Alex Ferguson had already gone through a certain amount of development before they were even around and this is where you know you know this is what met, separates him from the rest because oh I shouldn't say the rest but a lot of the ones around at that time because he was very aware of how his behavior affect other people affected sorry other people and because of that he was very mindful of his approach and this is why in the book I've got people like Quentin Fortune talking about how he tailored his approach to others. Um, and that's ha- and for him to do that, obviously, it's for a reason. So he can get you feeling good and you can give your best version of yourself. Whereas traditionally in England, you'd have a manager who would do a generic approach to all players. Meaning that, yes, it might cater to one, but it won't cater to the other. So you will get the best out of one, but you won't get the best out of the other. It's the same in schools in the school system. So... That's what made it work in terms of Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson. That filtered down through his ethos throughout the club. And obviously to nurture the players that come through. And this is why um, Man United was such a great team, even when on paper, 
a lot of people probably thought they weren't, you know, as good as the previous teams because there was a culture in the club. And when you were there, you were a part of that culture. You knew what you was doing and you felt valued. Every player that comes through that system, you'd always see a picture of Sir Alex with them when they were a kid. That, what is it, Tomine, that, that one that's broke through now? There's a picture of Sir Alex with him as well. It's unbelievable. I mean, I can talk about him all day. So when we go back to the original question about the support and why, you know, that group made it through, it's because that environment was created from the top, but also they created an environment amongst themselves. And funny enough, I talk about environment in the book as well. So, yeah. Yeah, so almost uh, it's not the players that are the outliers. It's almost the environment. Ferguson, that was the outlier in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he, he, he created the climate. So it started from the top and then it filtered through his staff and then to the players. And that's why when you look at um, the interviews back in the day, you'd hear after a match, the players will say, at United, you don't do X. It was amazing. I never heard of anybody else at another club speak like this. And these were players coming from other clubs and you won't really hear them saying it at the other clubs, but it was almost like, you know, this is the United way. And that was enforced from the top. And we've seen the change that have happened since he's left, you know, so good on him. Yeah, so you came through, did you Did you come through the youth system at West, you know, you came through at Charlton? Um, yes, so but, I was a schoolboy school at West Ham and then a pro at Charlton. But then West Ham, Kevin, would be in the top five, I would guess, of the top developing, you know, Lampards, the Coles, the Rios all came through. So was it done in a different way? But you know what? It's interesting. In football, we're lazy. And this is a big reason why I did the book. Multi-million pound industry, or billion pounds, should I say. <clears throat> but we don't look at the details. So first of all, you know, it's like, okay, so West Ham were one of the best at that time. But we research and data can tell you so much that like they produced these players. First of all, they gave the players a platform to come through. Because one thing I learned when I was playing, there were some unbelievable players that the world will never hear about. Because they played for top clubs that didn't give them an opportunity. So that's one situation. Two, um, we've got to look at in terms of, with regards to their development at West Ham, and I'm taking nothing away from West Ham, we don't know what comes naturally to a player. So for example, would Rio, Lampard, Joe Cole, well, Joe Cole was a phenomenon before he even went there, but would they have been the player they were if they were somewhere else? Were, were they destined to have that ability regardless? We will never know. And obviously, as I said, you know, let West Ham and Tony Carr have their plaudits. What I would say is, for me personally, it was a breath of fresh air when I was playing there because one thing I loved about Tony Carr is he gave you freedom to be. So I couldn't, it felt so nice to play under a coach who didn't always feel like he needed to interrupt and say something. And at that time, you know, I'd been at Charlton when I was even younger, but I got released or Millwall. Um, I was in my Sunday league and I always felt like you had managers who would shout. And, and for me, Tony Carr was quite refreshing in that way. So, and I think at that time also, West Ham had the best academy along with Arsenal. But my, my thing is, it's not so much about the answers. It's more about the questions. So it's like West Ham, did, you know, didn't they have like the best academy at the time? Well, how would we know? And it's not a disrespect to them, but I love the fact that we, that question in itself can make us open up an academy and really dig into what are the nutrients to help them thrive, and were they um, responsible or were they not? And then that conversation can spread throughout football, and then it gets other coaches and other people thinking. Mm. I love that, looking, overlooking the stats. Your new book features 40 top players from the world's top leagues. In doing your research, what were the character traits, the, the immeasurables that stood out to you with every player? 
Um, there were there were no character traits. Um, it was when I was speaking to players, it was more about me saying to them, "Tell me your story," and when it, whenever they shared a part of themselves with me, I then would transcribe. So, for example, say if it's a player, a lot of the times I would do it at home, and we'll do like a a Skype or a face uh, FaceTime. And I would record the, the interviews and it'll be like two hour long and I'll transcribe it onto paper. And some I would take bits out and some I'll put the pretty much like a large chunk of the transcription. And then I'll decide which chapter it would go into. Or if there wasn't a chapter, I'd literally create one because I feel like, you know what, this is really relevant. This is what people need to hear. And this is, you know, it would support or it would educate coaches. It would support players or parents. So um, there isn't really any in terms of character traits but it's just about them giving a part of themselves for you know football lovers or football players or the system itself when you you interviewed different types of character or categories for the book um so one was an injured player and other was decision maker so you're, you're looking at like you said looking at the different players um the probably the dis- the biggest disconnect in a club i feel is the the connection between the injured player and the coach. Um, we, we say of disconnections or coach tension, we think of a, of a player making mistakes and a coach yell at them. But there's nothing as difficult for a player who's not getting any attention from a coach uh, and is in the treatment room every day and is kind of shutted away from players and staff and everything. How can coaches do better in this area? I think they could be better in general in terms of being more mindful. I think mindful coaching is the way forward. So... With players that are injured, you know, they feel neglected. So if coaches can get them more involved, whether it be when they're coming back from their injury, getting them involved. I know it might sound silly, but even getting them to ref the game. So they're in amongst the banter and and being still kept up with the information that's being passed on. If they've, for example, just broken their leg, it could be the coach checking in on them. Whether it be they're at home, you're just giving them a call. Whether it be they're in the treatment room, having uh, a conversation about how do they feel. So it's not when you're back, because a game, it's like, okay, the player now feels I can't play, and now maybe I'm starting to feel a bit of pressure of when I can come back into the team. But when the conversation is more about the player's well-being, then I feel that that would be a huge plus for them, um, and they'll feel more reassured. At the moment, I don't feel there's enough of that going on, and this is where Fabian Delve spoke about people saying he wouldn't come back the same, people saying that he might have to retire and all of this. And then you've really got to deal with seeing your replacement playing well or the club linked to transfers. So all your thoughts just start spiralling all over the place, you know? Mm. Because of the way society works today, it seems that we're in a, not just soccer, but just the world in general, there's a huge rush of judgment. You know, in social media, someone does something, there's a reaction, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that's discouraging players to be creative, to take risks, express themselves more? Is that having an impact on, on players? It's a toughie. Um, for me, obviously, I do a lot of work across the Premier League clubs, but a lot of my work's in the classroom. And when I research football, it's more from a distance. So this is something I need to improve on. I, I need to get actually on the training field with players and staff more. So I'm, I'm going to give you my opinion, but it's not. it's only based upon my opinion. I feel as though... How we've moved forward in this country, I feel players probably have a bit more creative freedom. I think the pressure is just existing as a footballer now. Not so much what they do creatively, but just existing because, um, you know, it's like you can't say this, you can't wear that. I don't feel that it's just the creative side. I feel as though it's just that 
you know, I've got this attention, I wear this club badge, and now I'm going to be consistently judged. Um, only a player could tell you if, if it does affect them creatively. It probably does, actually, because when you think about it, they're going to be less likely to take calculated risk because it makes them more vulnerable to judgment. So, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, that, that pressure, just staying on that one. So do you think that's changed then from, you know, when I was growing up, when you associated pressure in football, it was big crowds or a big game. Now it seems to be pressure, like that vulnerability, that standing out, that being different. You know, is, is that, how do we, I suppose it does that, do you think that exists? How can we change it if it does help it? Um, I've, I think the way to change it, if I'm being honest, is just to help with the players and around emotional literacy. So, you know what, them understanding, you know what, this is a part of the game and we can't change what other people do. Just like outside of football, you can't change how people treat you. But what we can do is build your emotional resilience so that you can just kind of palm it off in a way. There's a lot of players who I admire who are just naturally born with it. It's unbelievable. Like, they just got that character where it's like, do you know what, whatever, this is how I play, this is how I'm going to play, I'm not going to bother. Um, and there's some, there's a, there's a, a story of a, a former Man United player that a lot of people don't know about, but he was unbelievable. Um, he had, you know, he had this character trait, but also there's Jaden Sancho, who's, who I feel has it. And Jerome Thomas from my time at Arsenal, he had it. And I feel as though Jaden Sancho, I always say this, is Jerome Thomas reincarnated. I feel like jo Jerome Thomas didn't achieve what I feel he could have done with his ability because he was unbelievable. But I feel like Jaden Sancho will kick on and, there's much, how skillful they are, it's that personality that it, it they almost their character off the pitch and on the pitch merge into one, and they have this football arrogance, and I find it intoxicating. You, I remember playing on the pitch. I was about seventeen, and Jerome Thomas got into an argument with my right back. He was playing left wing at the time. And Jerome Jerome said to the right my right back, he said, "Shut up! I'm going to flick the ball over your head." So then two minutes later, Jerome got the ball on the on the left wing. He's flicked it over my fullback's head and smashed it in the top corner. And I just thought, oh my God. But that is Jerome. And he was he just had this confidence about him. And it's just it was bulletproof. And I think and so some some people are naturally born with it. And I think you can develop it in other people as well. So going back to the coaches piece. Yep. It, it's challenging to deal with better play. Like we think we have this dream of coaching, like we do in all areas of life. We've we misinterpret success. Um, we think that the better players we have, the easier it is going to be to coach. But should we, as coaches, become a bit more aware in coach education that the better players you have, you have to allow them to express themselves and allow them to challenge you? Um, yes. Um, I would say, I mean, that's a, it's a good question. I'm just trying to think of how to go about it. I think coaching, and Michael Bill spoke about this in the book as well, is, is, is a lot of it is to do with coaching the person. And I feel that in football, we can do more when it comes to qualification about looking at the person. There's a strong element that needs to be focused on tactics. But once players get a, a good understanding of that now, it's how can the coach get the best out of them in varied situations? How can the coach motivate them when they're playing a team that's probably in, in favour of them winning? How can they get the best out of them when it's a tough game, when it's a team that's probably rated better than them or a tough opponent, a player? How can they get the best out of them when they, there's so much riding on the game or when the player is upset about things, maybe off the field? How can the, how can the coach calibrate the player to realise, hold on a minute, there's something going on with him here. Now, his body language has changed, his attitude, attitude has changed. 
But let me not vilify him because actually it could be something personal and not just me saying, you know what, he's got a bad attitude, he needs to sort himself out. There's maybe something where I could actually step step in and rescue the person. Yeah, that's something that, I mean, I look back now and, and I've I've done that to players. I've done that to where players shut down or hasn't performed and I've grabbed a bad attitude card whenever in reality without looking deep enough at taking the time or asking someone. Um, do you think coaches, you know, you've done a lot of, just in, in, in looking at your journey, you've, you go to a lot of clubs in the Premier League. Are we becoming now more open to outside help, uh, psychology element to it? Um, kind of, but it's forced. I feel that it's difficult for coaches because it's being forced. So systematically brilliant is being in place. But the problem we have at the moment is that the coaches aren't being taught, but then there's the expectation that coaches should implement it. And I feel that they've got so much on their hands already that I feel that the clubs maybe should prioritise it more. But it's a case of coaches are going to struggle to manage their workload and then bring something else into play. So it's very, very difficult, if I'm being honest. Yeah, there's that's what I'm fascinated by. Do, do you think, again, then as coaches, I'm, I'm thinking how what's the next step, you know, because we know it's needed and the players are, are almost crying out for it. Is it, uh, is it one for individual, but you bring in small groups? What's the best way to, del- del- to deliver it, in your opinion? Well, um, a part of the a program that I've got, so psychology was a service before I actually did the book, but it actually talks about how to develop those skills and I give scenarios. So it's one thing me saying, for example, you know, being mindful and all of this, da di da da But for a coach listening, they would, they would be like, okay, great. But to give specifics, to understand how behaviours turn up, um, I will then do examples. And in the book, obviously, I've, I've written about the examples. So I had friends um, who would go to clubs and their attitude would stink. For a coach, they'd think, what on earth's wrong with this player? But what the coach wouldn't know was that the past four teams that this, this player's been at, there's been really little to no man management. So the manager may drop them and not speak to them. And then the player's upset and then they'll have to leave. So then what would happen is, is by the time they've reached their fifth club and it's Friday afternoon, they're doing shadow play, the player now, because there's no communication, the player starts to pull all the information from the environment and construct his own reality. So what he starts to do is think, hold on a minute, I'm on this team and that team looks like it's going to be the starting team because most people that start are on that team. That means I'm not starting. So they start to recall all the situations that have come before and now they now think that, oh, I'm not starting. So now you insert bad body language, attitude changes, effort drops. Now the manager sees this and says, oh, look at him, his attitude stinks. So then now the manager changes the behaviour towards the player and it becomes this behavioural cycle. And now the manager, who had no awareness of what was happening before in this player's life, then gets rid of the player. But then what's interesting, and this happens a lot in football, is that the player would then leave and as the player's trying to go to another team, the manager will then ring up the previous manager and say, oh, what's this player like? Anyway, oh, he's got a bad attitude. And then it ruins the player's career. Oh, that's... And everyone who's listening to this is probably nodding their head, saying, yeah, that's what happens. Um, when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of also how we interpret. You know, a setback maybe back in the day in, in a manager's career wasn't what we were expected to get through, Kevin, 
in our day, players are finding tough today. Like playing time is probably the biggest one. So interested to get your thoughts on how a coach deals with a balance of supporting a player through, you know, where you're not starting. How does how do they deal with a balance of supporting them through that, or you know, then not going overboard and and empathising too much, where you create, you know, a, a level of entitlement from the player. Yeah, I think honestly, I think that's just being it from the get go, from the when the players come, and I think endings and beginnings are the most important. So when it comes to pre season, it's like we know the reason why pre season exists is because how we start the season is so important. So even though it's about your endurance throughout the season. You do it at the beginning for a reason. And I also think that from a, a mindful behavioural aspect, it's like that's a chance for the coach to enforce how they intend to go about the season, not just through strategy on the pitch, but also strategy in terms of how they manage situations. So it could be a case of when they speak to players, they also get them involved and say, look, you know, I'm, when we do pick our team for the, throughout the season... You know, this is just an example, but, you know, it'll be on form. You know, for those who are not going to be in the team, I will speak to you. You know, you might not be happy with what it is, but bear in mind, it's a squad game. And as you all know, not everyone's always going to play all the time. Um, and then say to them, how would you prefer for that situation to be managed? So it becomes a conversation that they feel part of. Generally, there's not really much you can do. So what the, what would be the case is you probably get players saying, look, we just want to be told. So then the manager will be like, OK, that's fine. So before... You know, I announce the team, I'll tell you you're not in the team. Now, once that happens throughout the season and the manager drops players, the player can be upset that they're not in the team and they can feel that, you know what, they deserve to be in the team. But it's based on opinion and the manager's opinion is what counts the most. But what they can't be is upset because they've been involved in how the process gets managed. And I feel that that's probably like the most effective way. And it sounds so simple, but it's a trick that many people miss. Yeah, we want to, we, we almost detach ourselves from the situation and at one moment in time, then we blame the player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is why I say to coaches, a lot of time I say, you know what, you've got to have a strong heart to be a coach. You've got to be, is, I always say, when you work in football, you need everything a footballer needs. We talk about bravery and being, and courage, being courageous. But to be a coach, you've got to be able to look in the mirror and that means when a, behave, a player's not behaving the right way, it's the coach's responsibility because he's their player. If he's not there, that's fine. I'm not saying you could dismiss it like and, and take, not take responsibility. But if he's not behaving a certain way, then it's, it's really difficult to look in the mirror and say, OK, first of all, am I playing a role in this? And what role am I playing? It, because it's a relationship. It doesn't matter if it's a relationship with your mum, your sibling, even your spouse. You know, it's... What role am I playing in this relationship and how can I change it? But it, 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 you have to be brave because at the end of the day, it's so easy to dismiss and blame somebody else. Your work with Fabian Delph, uh, was reading about this in an interview, um, the, the vegan diet that made the headlines. So without going into detail with, with him specifically, can you talk about the connection between diet and what it does to performance or lifestyle management? Okay. Well, first of all, I have to do a correction because I killed him. I actually, that, that, was, that was a mistake because what it was is I think I spoke to um, Delph and Clichy around the same time. Clichy's a vegan. Delph isn't. He eats clean. So I just want to correct that. In the book, it's actually corrected, but obviously the, the media ran with the vegan stuff and he was getting hounded about. He's like, Kev, look. He was sending me messages going, look what you started. So I was like, oh, man. But, but 
But so imagine this. So I spoke about being mindful as coaches, right? Now, when you look at a footballer um, and Delph, when he got he went through these injuries and people were talking about him in only in relation to his injuries, it was amazing how he turned his life to being more mindful. So he changed by, you know, the different types of fuel that he puts on his body by eating clean, the different types of training, the philosophy he lives by in terms of how he trains. Everything changed and he's more he's a more mindful person now. And for me, that is quite telling because when you are in a good space psychologically, it benefits your performance on the pitch. And Gail Clichy, similar to, to Delph, minus the injuries, he said at Arsenal, he turned to Yoga Nidra. And when he did, he played against Barcelona in the Champions League and his performance was unbelievable and he never looked back since. He then goes on to talk about Patrick Vieira and Burkamp and how they live in a, a nice space whereby the performance doesn't damage them. And what I mean by that, you know, back in the day, there was this expectation whereby if you played bad, you know, you shouldn't be happy for a week or whatever it is. Whereas with Gail, he's like, you know, I give my best. And, if, you know, if it doesn't go well, I'm, I have to move on to the next one, you know, and that's just how it is. But everything is linked and being in that space, that clear space, that positive space I always say, and I say this at clubs, I say, look, even if the club has no interest in the player's well-being, which it should, it's in the club's best interest to have their well-being at heart because it, it gives them a better chance to perform better. So it makes sense. The individual at youth level, individual player and, and trying to get them, then once they step into almost the, the focus of the, the coach turns into more of a collective, we want that player to impact the collective more. But they've spent five, six years of their lives in development looking after themselves. Uh, is that do you do you see that at all? Um, no, I don't really see. If I'm being honest, I, 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 in terms of leadership, there, I think in the youth and the first team is quite similar, whereby they're almost expected to kind of lead themselves, but be be a collective. The only issue I've got around that is that I feel well, not even around that, but kind of sidestepping is I feel that there's too much for the team and academy so I feel that it's a team game but you have to be a bit more selfish I was way too humble and way too for the team and that affected my performance when I look at someone like Jermaine Defoe who um, I was a striker at West Ham and then I became a midfielder but Jermaine Defoe when we won a game he wouldn't have been happy if he didn't score and if we lost the game and he'd scored he wouldn't be over the moon, but he'd be contented. And when Harry Redknapp would ask, and I was there when he asked Tony Carr, you know, how did the game go? Who scored? It was Jermaine, you know. And when that name keeps popping up, you're going to be like, hold on a minute, I need to get this kid. And so there's, a, there's we need a bit more selfishness, and it's about finding that balance. And I feel at the moment it's too easy um, to be, you know, humble, think of the team, because commercially that's great. But the best players I've seen to be honest with you, have been more selfish. And we all know this. We've either played with players or against them who, you know, we say, get the ball to them so they can do what they do. And really and truly, the other team, sorry, the other teammates are facilitating, they're enabling that player to do so. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, the player doesn't care about the team or the player doesn't work hard, but it's just that we understand that person's benefits. They, they can be our leader or what's known as the technical leader in that instance. So, yeah, I, I think the question kind of merges. So I kind of spilled over into different areas there, mm. but I just felt the need to do it. Well, that's, a, that's a really interesting one that, again, as coaches, how would we? We had a, 
Simone McGill on here, who's a who's a pro player with Everton Ladies, and she was talking. Mm-hmm. She done a, a psychological study on basically on on behaviors that are almost expected behaviors that we assume just because they we should be doing them. And one of them was the well, how do you, how do you deal with playing a good game if you lost? Is it bad to feel good about a performance if you lose? And I don't think so. I think if if it's about development and you're in the academy. The coaches always say this is about your development, and they also say that not all of you, all of you are going to make it. So your job as a young pro is to go in there and do the best you can. Now, if you do the best you can, you can be proud of yourself. That doesn't mean you celebrate in the changing when you've lost in whatever, but at least you know when you go home at night that you can be, you know what, brilliant, I had a great game. You know what, ideally we should have won, but in terms of my development, in terms of what the coach was teaching me um, and what I've been trying to achieve, I achieved it. And we have to be very careful here because otherwise there becomes a really bad self-management system that plays out because what you can end up having is the team doesn't do well, but you do well, but then you're not happy. The team does well, but then you might not hit, hit everything that you achieved previously. So then the player is always chasing happiness and their experience then becomes a negative experience. In your interview on TalkSport I listened to last night, you said that yeah. each player you interviewed didn't want their kids to play the game and yeah i felt that this was i couldn't believe this because if this was boxing or nfl i thought you know you think oh that's fine understandable but what does that say about their experiences in the youth development phase or the game in, in general yeah well you know what it wasn't the players i interviewed it was friends so pl- other players but not the ones i interviewed but i when i speak to my friends who who say that i always say to them because I say I say to them that they focus on what football either didn't give them or what football took away. And not actually to them, but maybe their friends, other friends that are in the game. But I remind them that actually football took us took us across the world. Football took us um sorry, taught us professionalism. Football taught us how to handle pressure, although it could be a lot at times. There are kids now who are like twelve years old who are going through the pressure that their parents do at work as adults. Now, for me, is it too much pressure? Yes, but the bottom line is they're going through it. When they get older, they are so conditioned. There's so many things that they gain. Um, so I think sometimes footballers, and naturally we all do, sometimes we focus on on the negative. But yeah, it's, it's realistic. A lot of players don't want their kids to play. So unfortunately, that's just, just how it is. But I never even knew the TalkSport um, interview was on last night. So <laughs> you know more than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last one for you. So so just going back to the book, and and obviously there's there's be a lot of coaches listening to this here. Um, you know, give them a little summary of what the book can do for them as coaches. What what they can gain from understanding players in it. Okay, so the book is about the psycho and emotional elements of football, and I feel for coaches it will be really good for them because what it does, it allows them to get a better understanding of the player's emo- the player emotionally, but also from an art perspective. And also, not, not even just the players, for the coaches. Okay, so this is what I, this is the session I'm putting on. How can I translate that? So not only, only they can they do it mechanically, but they understand it and they know how to utilise it in certain parts of the pitch. How can I deliver my message um, differently to other people? And not only differently, but what ideas do what ideas can I use? And um, and reason why it's brilliant is because you've got people in the book saying, "Well, Sir Alex Ferguson did it this way. Jose Mourinho did it this way." You know, um, one of my regrets is I should have spoke to Cliche about Pep because I would have uh, Pep and Wenger. I know you mentioned them briefly, but I suppose I'm going to do another one where I want to be able to give 
a broad um, aspect of the top people and how they do things. So I feel for the coaches, they get an education of the the rounded view. Sorry, not the rounded view, but the rounded, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sphere of football. At the moment, I feel that in football, it's too much emphasis on the physical. And then the psychological that we do speak about is it's always to do with mental illness, not even health, but illness. I want to start bringing football IQ into the conversation around the psychological element now. And I've, um, I think at the moment, it's brilliant that we've got sports psychologists, but I don't feel they marry it enough or well enough to the art of football, mm. meaning how clever players are when it comes to, for example, if I've got an injury, I might not open up on my back foot enough. And I feel that some sports psychologists might not see that. They might look at, okay, you might score some amount of goals or run up and down. But it's just the little nuances where I feel coaches with, you know, reading the book, they will pick up on stuff and they might be able to extend and take things further. Fantastic. Fantastic. I can't wait to read it, Kevin. Um, I'm going to order it today. And Brilliant. I'm also going to do, I'm going to order two copies. And because because I think it's such an important message, I'm going to do a giveaway on Twitter for it as well. So, Brilliant. thanks, Kevin. We'll talk all soon. All right, Gary. All right, mate. All nice the best. Man. Thanks so much to Kevin for his time and his insight there. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, the two big takeaways for me, uh, first of all, was when he was talking about his experience as a player and how he struggled and how he almost changed and hid behind. He said he hid behind working hard. And that struck a bit of a chord with me because, you know, I look back and, and you we talk a lot as coaches about the importance and it's the correct message of course the, the importance of work ethic the importance of attitude the importance of working hard every day but that should not be the only thing a player judges their ability on or sees through themselves as I come in every day and I work hard because in doing that there uh, you know they also we want them to be creative we want them to make decisions we want them to enjoy the game we want them to express themselves so yeah, working hard, get that message through. But then we've also got to send a message through of knowing what the strengths of every player is and are they confident and see that in themselves as well. And I thought that was a great, great point. And um, The other one was about how he said, as a coach, everything a player requires, you also require. So he's talking about courage, decision-making, that creativity piece as well. And I think it's really, really well put because... Again, we also talk about players and sometimes we get carried away in player development and we don't focus enough on coach development. And I think it's nice to work alongside the player in your improvement and your journey as a coach that you've got areas that you're trying to improve and you've got areas that you're looking to work at too. And, you know, that creativity piece is always something, that courage piece is always something that taking risks, are you willing to be vulnerable? And I think that's what separates the top, top coaches is the players look at them and say, yeah, they back up what they say they are doing because they're, they are on a journey as well as I am. And it gets, it gets a little bit more respect. And I think the players, the players enjoy playing for coaches they got there. So I think it's a great message that, that Kevin has and, and his, his insight. I'm really, really looking forward to, to reading his book. I think you should go on Amazon today and order yourself a copy of it it's always good to expose yourself to new ideas there's so much good stuff out there and there's there's a lot of people we've got a couple more people coming up on the podcast who are 
who are writing and putting books out and you know I don't think you should be reading reading one book a year on psychology I think you should be reading as much as you can especially in the summer and we've got maybe a little bit more time in our hands you should be getting yourself about 10 to 15 books and just going through um, because none of them are going to contradict themselves like they're all similar lines in terms of the psychology and what we should be doing and improving self-awareness and and a little bit of intention here and intention there but it's just exposing yourself to new ideas and people who are forward thinking and player development I think it's so so important for the coaching community to get behind these people and to uh to like I said read their work and and to implement and try their ideas because um it, some of them are absolutely brilliant so um yeah let me know what you think of all that uh always interested to hear your thoughts twitter at gary kernine instagram at gary kernine facebook coach kernine if you want to shoot me an email as well gary at modernsoccercoach.com always appreciate you listening before you shoot off as always give it a little like a rating on uh, on the itunes page thanks for listening i will speak to you soon bye Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.